Okay. So you have your outlines. We'll be following them tonight, uh, filling in the various blanks that are necessary. Last week, of course, we began the series talking about, uh, from Ephesians chapter 1, about Jesus, um, or I should say about the scripture saying that we are chosen by the Lord, that we are adopted by him, we're redeemed, we're forgiven. We said that the first part of Ephesians chapter 1 talked about what God has done for us and the great amazing dignity that is ours as sons and daughters, uh, as Christians. So we talk about that word Christian. What's it mean to be a Christian? We start first with the dignity and the identity that we have in Christ. Um, that's really, really helpful, uh, particularly in challenging times and times of suffering, times of trials, to know your identity uh, and to know what God has called you to be and who he has formed you to be. Also, it's great for um, our life of walking in the relationship to the Lord. You know, um, a child in a family is strengthened in their sense of worth and dignity by their identity. They're knowing who they are in that family. Same thing for a Christian. The more we know who we are, the stronger we're convinced of that. We have confidence in that. We have conviction of our hearts. The more we're going to be able to live for the Lord, be useful for him, and we're able to... uh, uh, kind of refute temptation when it comes into our life because we'll know who we are, you know, and, uh, it, you know, it will just have a better sense of what it means to be part of God's family. It's always very helpful. It's always an advantage to know who we are. Ephesians chapter 1 is one of those great chapters in the Bible that gives us an identity. Tonight we're going to be looking at how we're the inheritance that is ours, how we're included in God's family, and the guarantee that he gives us. We'll talk about that. So let's look at the outline first, and um, if you haven't turned already, it's turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're just looking tonight at verses 11 through 14. So it's only four verses, but I guarantee you it'll be at least a half hour teaching. <laughs> I could never get away with this on Sunday, so... <laughs> All right, so let's let's read the scripture here. In him, according to the purpose of him, who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, who first hope in Christ had been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. In him, you also, who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Okay, so I get a, we're going to go back to the passage again. I get a underline your Bible, or if you don't feel comfortable doing that, just kind of make a notation in your outline, what I call the in him phrases. So let's take a look first. Verse 11, in him. Okay, so just underline that, in him. Okay, and if you look on down to um, verse uh, 12, 12, we were the first, uh, we who first hope in Christ, just underline the phrase in Christ. And then verse 13, in him who have heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, have believed in him. Okay, so... Those phrases, in him or in Christ, are all phrases that are meant to say, to talk about identity in Christ. 
So, and it's all the fruit, it's all the gift of what he's done for us in his son Jesus. So we talk about um, the death of Jesus, the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, the phrase in him talks about what has happened to us as a result of his death, his resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like in him means what's it mean to be part of his family? What's it mean to be part of his friendship or his life. And it always comes about as a fruit or the result of what he's done for us in his dying and his rising and the giving of the gift of the Holy Spirit to us. Okay. And that's not only in in Ephesians, but whenever you find that, particularly in Paul's epistles, Romans has a lot of that. For example, Colossians and so on. Whenever you find those phrases in him or in Christ, it's he's talking about what your identity is, who you are as a member of the family. That's come as a result of the gift of Jesus' dying and rising. Okay, let's look at number one on your outline here. And uh, the first uh, is the gift of the Holy Spirit is the foretaste of things to come. So the first fill-in is there. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the foretaste. And Paul says that. Um, he says here, as you look at, up your, uh, look at the outline there uh, of the Scripture passage right above number one, is when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the gift of the Holy Spirit is the foretaste of things to come. Foretaste means it's a preview of what's to come for us. It's kind of like the trailer to a movie, okay? (laughs) So you watch the trailer, you get an idea what the movie's going to be a little bit about, you know? So what the Holy Spirit is, he wants to give us a foretaste of things to come. Things to come meaning what it's going to be like for us in heaven. So let's take a look. Um, first of all, before we get to the quotation from the catechism there, the Holy Spirit is the fruit of Jesus' dying and rising. In other words, he comes to us because of Jesus dying and rising. Now, let's say Jesus came and he died, and that was the end of the story. He didn't rise. Then he's probably a good man, a prophet, maybe a holy man, but, you know, basically misunderstood by his times, put to death. That's it. End of story. Let's say he died and he rose. And then he stayed here on earth. Then he would be a really superhuman person, right? But uh, that's for the end. So in other words, Jesus had to die, had to rise, but he had to leave and go back to the Father to send the Holy Spirit to live in us. So the Holy Spirit is the gift of his dying and rising. It's the fruit of his dying and rising. Salvation is incomplete if we don't talk about the Holy Spirit living in us through the waters of baptism. So the third person of the Trinity, then, plays a significant role in salvation. Uh, you know, usually when we think of salvation, we think of Jesus. But, you know, actually the Holy Spirit, it's, it's a Trinitarian thing. It's a family thing. It's a, <laughs> this, this work of salvation. And the Holy Spirit is a significant person. I like to think of the Holy Spirit as God's uh, uh, ambassador or representative here on earth, if you can say that. So when Jesus came, he was representing the Father. He went back to heaven. So now the Holy Spirit is the personal representative or the ambassador for Jesus here on earth. So the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us the blessings of redemption. All those in him phrases that I just have you underlined there, all the, who, the one who makes that all reality for us and experiential reality is the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's look at the catechism quite, quote here. It's uh, the Holy Spirit's transforming power in the liturgy hastens. This is every time we gather for Mass or we gather for um, liturgical prayers of some kind. 
the Holy Spirit's transforming power and liturgy hastens the coming of the kingdom and the consummation of the mystery of salvation. While we wait in hope, he causes us really to anticipate the fullness of communion with the Holy Trinity. Sent by the Father who hears the epiclesis, that means uh, sending of the, Holy, of the church. It's a prayer for the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives life to those who accept him and is even now the guarantee of their inheritance. So every time at Mass, particularly the, liter- the Mass, when the priest is praying for the Holy Spirit to come upon gifts of bread and wine to transform him to the body and blood of Christ, the Holy Spirit who comes and does that is giving us a foretaste of our future inheritance. Okay. Which word are you talking yes. Epiclesis means a prayer for the sending of the Holy Spirit. So the gift of the Holy Spirit shows up at every liturgy of the Mass. Can't have can't have Mass. Can't even have the body and blood of Christ take place without the Holy Spirit showing up. He's got to show up. Uh, so the priest has to show up, and the Holy Spirit's got to show up. Okay, so it's really important that the Holy Spirit be come to transform bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ. But the priest has to be there as the vessel, the primary vessel that takes place. The people of God who gather, like everyone who gathers, is the Holy Spirit is present in the assembly. Okay, let's take a look at number two in your outline. Chosen for the purposes of God. Chosen for the purposes of God. So let's look at verse 11. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance. And he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. Okay, so God chose us for his purposes. He chose us to be part of his plan. He chose us, as it were, from not only the Jewish people, but also the Gentiles he chose. It was God's heart, God's plan, God's purposes to be able to choose a people that would serve him, that would give him praise. Let's take a look at the word chosen there. In the Greek, clara, which means destined according to God's purposes. Destined. So when we think about God's choosing of us, it's deliberate, it's purposeful, it's a plan, it's something he has in mind from the very beginning. It's something he always wanted to do. It wasn't like an afterthought. It wasn't like a spontaneous thing. It wasn't like he woke up one day scratching and says, you know, I think I'll choose them as a people. So in other words, it was God's purposes from the beginning to choose a people, to choose us.
Okay, so um, God's plan is to choose a people then, destined according to his purposes. So in other words, God's choosing of you to be part of his family is not an afterthought. It's purposeful. It's designed. It's something that he wanted to do, something that was in his heart always from the foundation of the world. So we think about our identity. We think about our sense of dignity, our sense of choice, a uh, sense of who we are. It's God's choosing of us. That's why for us as Catholics uh, and Christians in general, um, a child in the womb of a mother is chosen by the Lord. And then when we baptize that child, that child is chosen to be part of his family. They're, they're precious choices. They're significant choices. They're choices that are entirely coming from the heart of God. Um, that's why a human life from conception of the womb to the time they leave this earth at whatever age is significant in the Lord's heart, is, is purposed by him with a destiny, eternal destiny. And therefore, uh, God purposed and designed every single human being to live with him forever. Now, that doesn't always work out that way, but nonetheless, he designed it that way. That's what his purpose is. The Bible says that hell was made for the devil and his angels. It was never made for the human race. So, uh, so God never destined any human being ever to be lost for him for eternity. His vision is they spend eternity with him. So, but we know, um, we know that that isn't always the case because he gave us the dignity of a human cho of choice, you know. But from God's perspective, he chose purposely our destiny. So, and that's what, let's look at verse 12 here on your outline. God's purpose was that we Jews who are the first to trust in Christ, we bring praise and glory to God. God chose the, the Old Testament people, the Hebrew people, to be a nation that would live for his purposes. Look at your outline here, Isaiah 43, the people whom I formed for myself, so they might declare my praise. Israel's vocation was to showcase to the earth the glory of God and provoke the nations to want to come into the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in other words, Israel's vocation was to say, hey, you want to see what it looks like to be in the family of God? Look at us. Look at the blessings. Look at the prosperity. Look at how God is working with us. Look at us. And hopefully the nations of the earth would say, you know what? We don't like our, we don't like our gods, so we like your God better because we just look at your life and look at your relationships and look at how God's blessing you and look at how you deal with all kinds of circumstances and situations in a way that is really healthy and functional, and we like that. So we want to become part of your covenant, be part of your family. That was the vocation of Israel. Now, it didn't always work out that way, because Israel had a rocky relationship with the Lord. They were up and down, up and down, in obedience and disobedience, and they didn't always show forth the glory of God to the nations of the earth. And so the nations of the earth got mixed messages, you might say. Uh, now, here's the thing. The New Testament people, let's turn over page 2, the Christian believers are to live for the purposes of God as well. And guess what? The Christian people are to be showcase the glory of God to the peoples of the earth. So they'll be provoked. They want to become a Christian, a follower of Christ. So the, a Christian continues the vocation of Israel, which is to provoke the nations to want to become part of God's family through the waters of baptism now. Uh, and uh, so let's take a look at what are the purposes of God. To do that, get, let's turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at what the Lord's purposes are for Christian life, 
for a parish community um, and how these purposes, when work together in a balanced way, provide a very healthy parish life, provide a very healthy Christian life as well. Acts chapter 2, um, Luke is writing to, uh, actually he's summarizing what typical Christian community looked like. Now he's, he spent 30 years like researching this and seeing it firsthand, and then he writes a summary of it here in Acts chapter 2. So verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, let's take a look at the purposes of God. Where are they? These verses describe those purposes. First is worship. Take a look at uh, verse 42. The second part of verse 42, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Breaking of bread is a reference to the Eucharist. Prayers is the gathering of the Lord's people outside the Eucharist to pray together. So one of God's purposes for a Christian life and for a healthy parish life is that we worship together. Now, worship isn't just singing songs and praying prayers. It's a surrendered life to the Lord. It's living as he wants us to live. But certainly, we start with worship, praying together, worshiping together. For us as Catholics, the Eucharist is the heart of that, the center of that. Um, so to gather to worship on Sunday is to form our hearts in such a way that we want to live the rest of the week for the Lord, live a surrendered life to him the rest of the week. Surrendered life in terms of our jobs and families and relationships and our own private life as well. Living a worshipful life where we gather with the Christian community, both for the Eucharist and for other gatherings of worship and prayer, that leads to a surrendered life is one purpose the Lord has for us as an individual Christian, but as a parish community. So we should be gathering, obviously, on Sundays, but we should be gathering other times to pray together as well as a, as a Christian community, whether it be in small gatherings or there be a, a liturgical kind of gathering in church. So worship. Second is discipleship. Let's take a look at what that is. Is Look at verse 42, the first part of it, and they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, apostles' teaching. Uh, the teaching of the apostles is this Luke's summary way of describing the teaching of Jesus that's been handed down to us. And that teaching includes the meaning like of his death and resurrection for us, something that we're talking about here tonight, but also includes all the other teachings of Jesus that's applied to our life as Christians. So in other words, the every generation of Christians, every parish community, if you would, and every Christian is to receive ongoing teaching of what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. And a way to describe a disciple of Jesus is to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. So when we say, What's a, what's a healthy Christian life involved? What's a healthy parish involved? Teaching. Teaching and teaching and teaching about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be conformed to his image and likeness. And that teaching can cover every aspect of life, our relationships, 
you know, our family life, our, how we handle our finances, our work, how we, um, how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ as Christians, and so on and so on. Um, basically, we take the teachings of Jesus, we apply them to our life as his disciples. Teaching is critical because our hearts and minds need to be formed in the Lord's Word so we can live for him. A parish community needs to be have continuous teaching in order for it to be able to know, hey, how am I supposed to live for Christ in all these different areas? If they don't know, it's difficult for them to live that way because they don't know. Um, so, in fact, the Second Vatican Council said the first duty of the priest is to preach, or you could say slash teach, not the sacraments. His first duty is not to celebrate the sacraments, but it's, they said it was the first duty is to preach the Word of God. Now, the whole point was that the Word of God celebrated, preached and taught leads to faith that leads to the sacraments. So the more that we receive teaching from God's Word and, and apply that to our life, the more we're going to encounter Christ in the sacraments. The sacraments become alive in a very real way for us when the Word of God becomes alive for us in our life. So that's true for an individual Christian. It's true for a parish community as well. Okay, third thing is ministry. Let's look at verse 43. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Okay, so, um, so there was a ministry going on, first with the apostles, but that extended to the rest of the community. In other words, every Christian is called to serve, is called to minister. Um, they're called to serve with the gifts of the Holy Spirit that the Lord has given us. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, says that everyone has been given a gift of the Holy Spirit for the welfare of everyone. Every Christian is called to serve other people, um, serve with their gifts, serve with the passions of their heart, to serve, in other words, serve what really, you know, not every Christian has the same thing that gets them uh, out of bed in the morning and up and moving. Some people love to serve the poor. Some people love to teach children faith formation on Sunday mornings. Some people, you know, love to um, be able to uh, help others grow in their Christian life in very small group settings, that kind of thing. So in other words, uh, there's a, the Lord has made us in a unique way, and it's, it's, a, it's the function of the parish community to help us discern how he's, how he's created you and how he's called you to serve in the local parish community. But the bottom line is, all of us by our baptism are called to serve. There's no pubertators, as I like to say. <laughs> no pubertators. Everyone is called to serve the Lord, serve his people. Okay. Number of, next is fellowship. Let's look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And if you jump, uh, verse 45, and they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all and as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together, breaking the bread in their homes, they were partook of food with glad and generous hearts. Now, a lot of times, I remember uh, once many years ago at a parish uh, uh, that I was pastor of, they, uh, we just formed a pastoral council, and I used this passage here, Acts 2, 42 through 47, to describe what, what the early church was like and how we can become like that. And the person looked at this passage and said they sold all their possessions. He said, that's communism. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I said, no, I said, you know, they were, they were private enterprise people, okay? In other words, they had their own property. Uh, what they did was they set up a distribution system that if there's anybody in need, they knew how to tap into that system 
asking the community to supply for the needs of, of people in their community. So they weren't communists. They were they set up a really well-defined and well-functioning distribution system. Here's the point. Fellowship is that there's no solitary Christian. There's no Lone Ranger Christian. And I often like to say even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. Okay. All right. So much of the Christian life is live isolated and alone. We, we uh, suffer alone. We go through trials and tribulations alone. We have successes and uh, alone. We don't share that necessarily with anyone. Um, but yet St. Paul said that in Philippians that we're to help each other work out our salvation. Um, so God's family is meant to, meant to be together. You know, we're meant to hang out together like we're doing tonight. We're meant to be in each other's homes sharing fellowship and praying. We're meant to be there uh, sharing our faith, our life with each other, sharing our joys and our sorrows, our struggles, our challenges, um, praying together. You know, uh, we're meant to be there not only in times of sorrow, but also times of joy. Um, so on. I often have said um, in previous places where I've been, <clears throat> that a Christian community in which people are learning to build relationships with one another. You know, often I use this analogy. I said, wouldn't it be great? I said, you know, if they, they you know, let's say you had 100 people doing that, and they all came to the, came to the uh, uh, 1030 Mass on Sunday morning, and as they walk down the aisle to go to communion, they look around and they see the people in front of them, and they say, oh, yeah, that's Mary Jo. You know, um, I'm in her small group, and... She was sharing the other day how she's struggling, you know, over her prayer life. And we pray with her and we encouraged her, you know, in that. Or, you know, there's Bill over there who just, you know, lost his wife. And, you know, and we met, we meet, he's in a men's group. And, you know, and we, he's getting comfort and encouragement and finding his sense of purpose at this stage in his life with the loss of his wife, you know. Um, you know, and, and there's Carol right behind me. And, and Carol has a, an adult uh, child who's like, um, has lost their way in life, and she's really broken over that. But you know, she's part of our, she's part of a small group, and she's being prayed with and encouraged, and, uh, and we're praying for that adult child. She's not alone in that, and all that is we're going to communion, and doesn't it? To me, it adds a different light on what communion's about, right? Yeah, it makes communion now not just me and Jesus, but me, Jesus, and you, you know, and all that you encompasses. That's what a parish is called to be. That's one of the purposes God has for our Christian life and for our parish life together. Lastly, evangelism. Let's look at verse 47. Praising God and having faith. This is back, we're back on Acts chapter 2, by the way. So if you had that finger in there, um, it would be helpful right now. <laughs> verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. This the Lord added to their number. Now, that doesn't mean that the individual Christians didn't share their faith. What that meant was that as they shared their faith and lived their faith in this kind of community together, that the Lord said, hey, you know, I'm going to send people your way. I'm going to draw people to you. I'm going to I'm, people are going to be attracted to this kind of life they see in you and in those that you're attached to as part of the family. Um, so... A fifth purpose for all of us and for parish community is that we share our faith with others. And we do that with words, and we do that with our deeds. But we also do it with the quality of life 
amongst each other. As we're building our relationships with one another, uh, we can say to people, why don't you come and see what Christianity is like? People will oftentimes come and see first before they are willing to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, you know. Or the, the, um, the Catholic who has the, you know, who has been out of church for years will oftentimes first come and see what a parish life is like before they will actually say, enroll me in that seminar, you know. So that's what the Lord was doing with, he was adding to people um, it didn't exempt people from sharing their faith. It just simply meant that he was adding to their family, their Christian family, as they lived and shared their faith um, with others. Evangelism, then, is something that every Christian is called to do. Every parish community is called to do it. If we don't do that, then our life is not going to be healthy. Okay, so let's take a look here at those purposes. Think about this. When, those pur- when our Christian life is working and developing all those five purposes, we have a healthy Christian life. When the parish community is working and developing those five purposes, we have a healthy parish life, a balanced parish life. Let me give you an illustration of that. In our bodies, our bodies are made up of, I think, nine different systems. Okay, so, you know, you have the circulatory system, digestive system, nervous system, and so on and so on. Okay, so if one of your systems isn't working correctly, we have dis-ease in your system, right? Okay, so we have to bring it back into healthiness again. So that's the same thing for a parish. When these five systems, if you would, or five, I like to call them five purposes or priorities, when one of them isn't working or two of them aren't working, we have a disease in the parish family. Or we have a disease in the individual Christian life. So I may be worshiping every Sunday, but I may not be um, ministering to anyone. Okay? Or I may be, you know, enjoying my small group, and I love my small group, but I'm not sharing my faith with anybody. You know? or, or, you know, um, heck, you know, I like serving, but I don't like coming to church on Sunday. You know, I don't like worshiping with the parish community. So, in other words, when our one, one of those purposes, or several of the purposes are not working, we have an unhealthy Christian life, we have an unhealthy parish life. You can have a parish community that does a lot of serving, but if they're not getting any teaching, they're not going to grow in the image and likeness of Christ. So they are an unhealthy parish at that point. So, We'll return more in future teachings about the purposes, but they really are significant. So look at Pope Francis said, In virtue of their baptism, all members of the people of God have become missionary disciples. Every Christian is challenged here and now to be actively engaged in evangelization. Okay, so let's look at number three. Faith in the good news of Jesus obtains the gift of the Spirit. Ephesians 1, Paul says this, And because of what Christ did, all all you others too heard the good news about how to be saved and trusted Christ were marked as belonging to Christ by the Holy Spirit, who long ago had been promised to all of us Christians. His presence within us is God's guarantee that he really will give us all that he promised, and the Spirit's seal upon us means that God has already purchased us and that he guarantees to bring us to himself. This is just one more reason for us to praise our glorious God. Okay, let's take a look, uh, if you turn over, take a look at some of the um, facts about the Holy Spirit 
that Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 talk about here? First thing is, letter A, is we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, a seal in the day of St. Paul was actually taken from the Roman army. A, a soldier who was part of the army had on their forearm a seal of the commander of that army, which meant that the commander of that army owned that soldier, and it was tattooed on his forearm, the particular insignia of, of that commander. Uh, so that meant that Roman soldier belonged to that commander of that army. He was owned or sealed by the, uh, that commander. So we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. How do we get sealed with the Holy Spirit? Well, in baptism, we are anointed with the Holy Spirit. We're marked with the sign of the cross on our forehead. Um, in confirmation, we're anointed with the Holy Spirit. In holy orders, a priest is anointed on his hands with the Holy Spirit. In marriage, the ring, the marriage ring, is the seal of that relationship, that covenant, or that sacrament. To seal means I belong to the Lord. I, I belong to him. Galatians 4 on your outline here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of women, woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay. So the seal is God's ownership of us that we are his sons and daughters. Letter B. Promised pledge. Okay. If you look at um, different versions, have different things, but say different things. But uh, if you look at um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, let's look at verse, actually verse 14. His presence within us is God's guarantee that he will give us all that he promised. Another way of saying guarantee is pledge. Promise pledge. Now, the promise is from the Father. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 on your outline here says, while, while he was gathered with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. The Father's promise is the Holy Spirit. He says, this, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, which you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. It's the promise pledge. So when we talk about um, when we talk about pledge, what we're talking about is that um, the Father wants to pour into our heart His love for us. He wants us to have a confidence and a conviction and assurance of His affection for us. That He's a Father to us who wants to have our best interests at heart and wants to provide and care for us, and has a plan and a purpose for our life here on earth. And he wants to pour our love into our, his love into our hearts so that we have that confidence and assurance about his care and his love for us. It's the, it's the same thing as we say for a good father of a family would want to make sure that their children, his children, walk with confidence and assurance of his love for them, his care for them. I often say it's one of the most uneasy situations is when a child doesn't have confidence in their father's care or provision for them. 
they feel there's a certain sense of insecurity and uneasiness in, about them, a lack of healthiness regarding their identity. And, and, and of course, you know, that gives, can give rise to so many issues that can come into their life, but it all stems back in many ways to the fact that they, they didn't have a father or the father couldn't express his, his uh, love for them in such a way that they would feel secure in that love. The good news is, as we talk about here, is that God can make the difference for us if our earthly father wasn't at all that he could have been or should have been for us. But God the Father wants to do that for us. Okay, so letter C. The Holy Spirit is the first installment of our inheritance. First installment. Now, again, I'm using the word guarantee here. It's another way of describing first installment. The, the Greek is arabon, which means guarantee or pledge. Now, I'll give you a couple examples. Let's say you go to a car dealer. Boy, I love this car. I'm putting down $3,000 on this car. And then you go back home to, you know, to get the finish off the rest. You better, are you coming back for the, for the car? <laughs> Don't write you're coming back for the car because you have $3,000 invested in that. Gets guarantee or pledge or installment. Okay. The Holy Spirit is that installment or guarantee and pledge of God's seriousness about his plan for our life, his purposes for our life, and his love for us. Another example will be an engagement ring. When, uh, say, a man gives a, a woman an engagement ring, what is he doing? He is pledging his love for the rest of his life to her. And when she receives that, she's accepting that and pledging her love back to him for the rest of uh, their life. And the, the engagement ring is the pledge or that guarantee. It's the visible outward sign of the expression of their wanting to spend their life together. The Holy Spirit is that pledge to us, that guarantee that's the first installment that God has in store for us. Okay. And number four, redeemed to be God's possession. Verse 14 again in Ephesians 1. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Um, when we say God's possession, we mean part of us, we're in his family. We belong to him. That, his, that the purposes he has for us are realized here, but he has an eternity for us that will be far richer than what we're experiencing here. So in other words, to, to experience the Holy Spirit now in our life, to experience being redeemed, forgiven, chosen, is only a foreshadow of what he has purposed for us. In other words, this is not all there is. It gets better. Now, it, can get good, it can be good here, but it's going to get better beyond what we could imagine. That's why it's the first installment, meaning there are other installments awaiting us. Okay, let's take a look at this now. Uh, if you turn over to page four, the father wants a family to live through. He all, that's what he always wanted. That's why he created Adam and Eve in the garden. They were supposed to have a race of people that were supposed to be the family of God, living perfectly in harmony with each other and with him. Sin interfered with God's purposes in the garden, but it didn't deter him. Remember, he... You know, after he, he took task with the serpent, he then promised that there would be a redeemer. 
the promise was, I'm going to have a family one way or another. I'm going to get a family. Okay. So the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit reestablishes the family of God. We call that family of God the church. And a microcosm of the church is the parish community. And we call the, the natural family, as, as Christians, we call our natural families as Christians, is the domestic church. See how that works? We are very much, in the, uh, this is very Christian, but it's also very Jewish, and it's also very particularly Catholic of understanding um, the, the nature of understanding covenant as family. And in the Catholic Church, we take that point to various levels by saying, who's the, who's the head of the parish community? We don't say he's a CEO or chief executive. We say he's the father. Because if you understand the parish is a family, you don't have a CEO's, you know, you have a father who's the head of a family. What we call, remember we used to call uh, some nuns who head up families of nuns, mother superiors, right? Right, okay. So uh, in monasteries, they call the abbot father of a community. And, you know, and so every family, you know, as Catholics, we have Mary, who's the mother of the church. Why call her mother of the church if you don't? Mo- only families have mothers. <laughs> okay, so, right? Okay, so you see that thinking? So, okay, now make it practical for us here at St. Patrick's. Then it's really important that we learn to become a family as spiritually amongst each other. Because if we don't, then it's just like contradicting like our identity. It's like we're not living who, who we're called to be. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ because we have a father who's the head of the parish community, right? We have brothers and sisters in Christ, because it's a family. And as a Catholic church, we say, those who've gone before us mark the sign of faith, we say are in the communion of saints. Communion meaning family, again. And in heaven, it's a family. It's not people floating around in a cloud, playing harps, sipping on Margaritas, (laughs) Margaritas, <laughs> all right. It's a, it's you know it's a family in heaven, in which there's no division, no separation. It's what God intended in the garden right, before the fall. See how that logic works out in our Catholic faith. Okay. So I'll go back one more, just one more. I don't want to carry this too far, but one more is sacraments. Then are family events. That's why um, I learned this a couple years ago. It took me a while to really grasp this understanding. But I'd say Philip Mary got to a point where I said, why am I charging for family events? <laughs> if we're a family, why am I charging people to bury our family members? You know? So... So it just got to a point where, for me personally, I began to realize, hey, you know, I mean, in my natural family, I never do that, you know. So why would we do it in our spiritual family? Okay. All right, number five. So, okay, so this is all nice, but, you know, let's, how we bring this home? Well, number five, experiential and visible effects bring us the awareness of the Holy Spirit in our life. So in other words, what we're saying here by this is that 
faith is experiential. It's not just experiential, it's also intellectual, but it definitely is experiential. Something we haven't emphasized enough in our, life, in our Christian life. Let's take a look at Galatians 3 on your outline here. Paul says this, let me ask you only this. He's writing to the Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, you're now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Notice what Paul is saying here. He said, did you receive? Receive is a language of experience. And he also says in verse 4, did you experience? So in other words, Paul is saying to the Christians at Galatia, he's assuming that they've experienced their faith in visible ways that affect them and bring about change within them, but also experiential ways, the ways that they become aware of, convinced of in their life that that this is what all the Lord has said to them about being sons and daughters and his pledge and all that is something that's now they've experienced within them. He's assuming they've experienced that, otherwise his whole argument falls apart here. So in other words, what we're saying is that the Christian life is meant to be not only intellectual, but it's also meant to be experiential, and there's meant to be visible effects of that in our life. So what are some of the visible effects? Things like, um, gifts of the Spirit. Uh, other things like changes within our hearts and lives. I can look back and say, I'm really, I'm changing. You know? um, a certain awareness that I'm growing in understanding of God today more than I did maybe a year or two years ago, and I can see how that's affecting the way that I make decisions and my outlook on things. There, that's examples of experiential and visible effects. Um, dealing with relationships in my life where, gee, I struggle with this relationship, but you know, having received some teaching now, maybe people praying with me about this relationship, um, it's much easier for me to forgive that person. Visible effect, experiential in your life. Okay. Uh, yeah, visible or visual, yes, yeah. It should be visible, actually. Yeah, something that you can see in your life. You can look back and you can say, hey, I've changed. I used to be this way and now this way. Um, I used to have... I used to be a person with a lot of resentment, but now I'm not that way anymore. It's much easier for me to forgive and so on. So visible effects that are experiential in my life. So that's why you hear us say over and over again that it's really important that we pray for more of the Holy Spirit in our life because he makes us all come alive for us. He brings us into the experiential and visible effects of everything that we're talking about here tonight. Number six, then, that brings us to this. Uh, so how we put this in practice. Pray for new release of the Holy Spirit's power, presence, and gifts in your life. Something you hear us do over and over again here. We'll talk about it. We'll eventually provide a lot more opportunities for it um, because it is so foundational to pray with people uh, so that they can experience the greater presence and power of the Holy Spirit in their life so they can become more convinced and aware of and experience these things that we're talking about here tonight. Number two, or next, is step out and serve with your gifts, talents, and resources the Lord gives you. So in other words, taking what the Lord has given me and begin to step out and serving others with that. And, number, and lastly, 
as a disciple, take small steps to grow in the five purposes. Look at your life, kind of do a little self-examination, say, where are these five purposes am I lacking here? You know, uh, or maybe I take some things for granted, you know, and so how can I change that? Now, down the road uh, in small...